You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Health officials are watching closely a cluster of positive COVID-19 cases at the Pearl City Nursing Home. Testing of its staff and patients is being stepped up. Dr. Scott Miskovich of the Premier Medical Group is leading that effort. We talked to him this morning from Pearl City. Well, the snapshot, uh, Catherine, is that uh, we have an employee who apparently was contacted by a family member positive, became positive, and fortunately the person hadn't been working for at least, I believe, a four-day period, notified the facility immediately. The facility immediately reached out to me. We had our strike teams in place and did massive facility-wide testing, including the just over 100 residents as well as almost 200 staff. And in that process, we found that there were a total of four residents that were positive and one other staff member. So right now we have two staff and four residents. And I was just up there uh, this morning uh, checking on everyone. And interestingly, everybody is stable as a rock. You would not know that any problems are going on. The staff is following protocol and policy, but um, but the patients are all stable. So that's uh, that's a perfect example of how we have to look at the nursing home clusters. I know there was a report that one of the residents was taken to the hospital but then was brought back because they were stable. Yeah, I was up there checking on that and all indications again are everybody is completely stable. I believe for whatever reason, I think it's from the hospital side, the transfer was uh, delayed. So I was checking and that person was not up in the room yet, but I'm told the person will be coming back and is stable. And it's something that, you know, it's really remarkable about COVID. Here we have this high-risk group, and they can be sitting there and absolutely with no distress or no problem. But the problem is if they do have problems, it can happen rapidly. So we've uh, increased the observation of these individuals. They're in a special ward. Their vital signs are taking much more frequently, like every three hours. And uh, trained staff are there to understand you're just looking for even mental status change, even if they're acting a little more drowsy. And then certainly the oxygen levels with their pulse oximeter or their heart rate are very important vital sign cues for some of these um, senior citizens, maybe not that verbal, or they may have memory care issues. So they have to have an understanding of what to look for. Are they asymptomatic or do they have symptoms? Asymptomatic, everyone, all asymptomatic. You know, I testified Thursday in front of the House Committee for Human Services, and uh, this was before this outbreak. I was standing up and saying, you know, we need to start following the same best practice guidelines that are going on across the, the mainland, which I'm actually involved with with my national roles. And they are preventatively, proactively testing in these communal group living facilities, especially the senior facilities where there's been such devastation across the country. The, the, the amount of deaths in nursing homes is just unthinkable. And we need to not wait till that occurs in our state. We need to be proactive. So I do want to say, hopefully the listeners will, will start putting some pressure on our our legislators and everyone to say, let's start testing all of these group living. We have 4,000 or so people here in nursing homes. We have another 8,000 in the smaller, whether adult-assisted living or the personal home care or smaller nursing homes. I'm very concerned about them. And I can tell you without giving up data, there are other positives that are occurring right now in these smaller care facilities. So we need to step up prevention and not wait and be reactive. And that has been a concern by the AARP, I think, with a number of the uh, elderly care advocates, the ombudsman. Yeah, the other thing I would say is that I've been talking to leadership across the state uh, that are in the forefront of looking at this whole preventative model and are involved. You know, we have a team all the time on the Big Island, and we've been called over to Maui many times but my belief is we should have a very accessible uh, designed quarantine facility for all of these, uh, these conjugate living facilities for seniors, whether they're in an intermediate care, skilled nursing, or just in a, a small care facility where there's only three people in a home. Immediately when someone is positive, they need to be transferred. I totally disagree with any uh, verbiage that has been passed around to saying, oh, no, let's just put them in place. No, that, that you can't deal with those people like that. These people need to be moved. They need to be observed. They can't stay in a group facility because of how contagious this disease is. And we need to um, proactively do it. Now, fortunately, 
through a couple other things that happened in the middle of the week last week. I was called up to Wahiwa General, met with the CEO, CFO, Director of Nursing, Director of Finance, and they have an entire wing of single rooms. I believe they have up to 23 spaces, totally perfect for isolation, that is ready to be used for this facility. I think the state should reach out to them and do whatever it takes to have that bed space available and have that uh, staffing available just in case. And if we never have to use it, wow, what a miracle. But, you know, we could be using this by the end of the week for all we know. And we can't get caught shorthanded because that means lives are at risk. So Wahoo General is just saying, here's what we've done. We've got these available beds. Whole ward, whole wing. And they were proactively preparing those for some other eventualities that might occur. I think those are eventually being considered as behavioral health for you know, dealing with the the, uh, the ACT treatment, but I think that um, COVID has stood up as a as a much higher priority right now in our community because the loss of life. So, I believe that with minor financial assistance from the state, these beds could be available immediately. I talked to leadership on Maui, and they don't quite have this type of space available. So they talked about hotel space and having a whole floor of a hotel that would be staffed by nursing staff, which makes sense. That, that's also being used across the uh, country as, a, as an idea of um, appropriate use of empty space. And I think it's fair to say, unfortunately, we're probably still going to have empty hotel floors uh, for, for a while looking forward. Well, we've got one potential facility here. Yeah, the question is, what about the neighbor islands? Correct, correct. And again, I, I can tell you we have a really strong working relationship with uh, the emergency management team and uh, and Mayor Kim's leadership group on the Big Island. So we're we're working closely with them. And as everybody knows, the Big Island almost you know you almost have two or three islands on the Big Island with its size, where you have to focus on the Hilo side for a, a possible uh, facility and one on the Kona side and. Actually, I'm on a group meeting uh, with uh, people down in Kau tonight. You know, so it's uh, it's a different animal, but we can we can do it, and we need to be prepared. And so, while there are calls for increased testing, there is concern because we're you know reading about all these reagents that are in demand elsewhere, and that that might affect our testing and the, our ability to get results quickly. It already has. I mean, we've already had our testing capability nearly cut in half. And unfortunately, the surge in the mainland is why we're sitting in this situation, because the specific machine that is being um, not able to access the reagents is one of the most common used in the mainland United States. And rightfully so. They're they're turning these reagents over to the um, ICUs and hospitals and emergency rooms where loss of life would occur if they're not appropriately and rapidly testing. And since I'm involved in national testing, uh, I've been involved in two or three calls already this morning, we're seeing that the standard national, even for the big labs like Quest and LabCorp, are now pushing out the 7, 10, and 14-day turnarounds. That is not how you deal with covid Think about it. You get someone tested, you don't know, 10 to 14 days later, uh, the cat's out of the bag. You know, what about contact tracing? In a perfect world, you get a test, you have results back in 12 to 24 hours. You find them, you isolate them, you quarantine them, you rapidly test all their close contacts, and you isolate them. That's how you flatten the curve. And so testing is the linchpin to being effectively able to manage this disease anywhere we turn. And that's why at the, uh, the House Committee, I had advocated that we take some of the CARES money and have the diagnostics and clinical labs, which are two big of our pillars that have been here forever, help them get two larger um, high-throughput machines. They do about 2,000-plus tests per machine per day. And for two machines each, we kick our uh, testing up to about 10,000. And that is what we should be at right now. We should be looking at having the access to 10,000 tests. And again, people might say, well, wait a second, we're not using 10,000. No, no. Well, of course, because one, we're not testing enough. Number two, we're not doing preventative testing. And number three, don't wait until it's too late. 
do it preventatively. We are projecting, looking at some of the scenarios that could come up if this disease spreads, we may need to be up to 25,000 tests a day. So we need to act now as a state. So what are we doing at this point? Nothing that I know of. And in all fairness, this has only been news now for one week, but I would hope that there is a massive push to discuss this even further and I think there was a little bit of information that needs to be clarified there. The state came out and said, oh, we got 25,000 test kits kind of saved. Well, that's 25,000 of the test kits that they have for the machine that they use where they're getting the CDC machine and reagents, but they're only able to process 250 up to, I think, 250 to 400 a day. I'd let, I'd let um, Ed, the head of the lab down there, clarify that. But So that might give us a little bit of bump it's not like if we had this massive surge, that's going to take care of everything. And again, I'm going to go back and say what I've been saying. We need to also be fair to our Department of Health. There is no Department of Health in the United States, in any county or any state, that is prepared for a pandemic of the century or even multiple centuries of this type. So we're all trying to come together, work together. We're all learning on the fly as this goes. And Yet, you know, we need to focus ahead and not just look backward and react. So I think that's we have that opportunity now. We need to do it right now. And you have some, what, new equipment in that will help with testing? Yeah, there is another type of test that is a rapid test available that has been validated. It's going through its third FDA emergency use authorization and it is now validated to be about 94% accurate as compared to the uh, nasopharyngeal PCR testing, and uh, that's very good. Now, I want to caveat it. This test is what's called an antigen test, and so what that means is looking for the active infection that is actually being emanated by this particle, and that means it is effective if someone is coughing, has fever, has symptoms, and is, you know, really shedding the virus. It is not just a broad-scale, broad screening for the, those low-grade asymptomatic or early positives. And where it could be effective is, like, in the mainland, they're using these everywhere, where you get these four-hour-long drive-throughs, and, and 20% of the tests are positive. You pop up to the drive-through and you're coughing and you you know everybody's sick they they do that test right on the spot with emergency results right away within 15 minutes if you're positive you're positive that's the value of it if you're negative you still probably need swabbed because it will miss some of the negatives but when it's positive it's positive it's so much more uh price sensitive and it is fairly readily available I have, uh, well, I have eight machines now. I have 10 machines, and I loan two over to Jim Ireland for potential use at the airport to uh, have it available for the rapid turnaround because it's more accurate than anything now in the country. It is a, another tool that we can use in this. Exactly. You got it. You got it. It's a, just an, it's another tool that has to be uh, used in the appropriate place in the appropriate hands. It's not just a general preventative test. It's for the acute phase reaction. That was Dr. Scott Miskovich talking about new testing equipment he acquired a few weeks ago to help with our COVID-19 response. He says while he did have it on hand to use for possible testing at the Pearl City Nursing Home, it was not used since the staff and patient cases were all asymptomatic. And now we hear from the BBC with the latest pandemic news. Officials within the World Health Organization warn that the crisis will continue to worsen if proper health and safety measures are not more carefully followed. And Latin America emerges as the second worst-hit region for coronavirus fatalities. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 13th of July. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The World Health Organization warns the pandemic will get far worse if governments don't stick to basic health care precautions. Latin America becomes the second worst-hit region for COVID deaths. Florida sets a new record for infections and confusion over lockdown measures in northeast Spain. The head of the World Health Organization has said some governments and people are not doing enough to combat the pandemic. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said too many countries were headed in the wrong direction. The only aim of the virus is to find people to infect. Mixed messages from leaders are undermining the most critical ingredient of any response. Trust. If the basics aren't followed, there is only 
one way this pandemic is going to go. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Latin America is now the second worst hit region for coronavirus deaths after Europe, but its outbreak is still growing. More than 144,000 people have died there, almost half of them in Brazil. Mexico, with 35,000 deaths, has now overtaken Italy. The coronavirus outbreak in the United States is also showing no sign of slowing. On Sunday, Florida registered the highest number of new infections of any state during the pandemic. Peter Bowes has the details. Florida is now seeing more new infections than most countries. Across the US, more than 60,000 new cases are being reported every day, and about a quarter of them are in the Sunshine State, where the hospital system is under growing strain and some intensive care facilities are at full capacity. Meanwhile, a doctor in Texas says a man in his 30s who thought coronavirus was a hoax has died after attending a COVID-19 party hosted by an infected person. The chief medical officer at the Methodist Hospital in San Antonio, Jane Appleby, said the victim regretted his actions. Just before the patient died, uh, they looked at their nurse and they said, I think I made a mistake. I thought this was a hoax, but it's not. This is just one example of a potentially avoidable death in a young member of our community, and I can't imagine the loss of the family. 83 millionaires from seven countries have called on governments to increase their taxes to help the world recover from the pandemic. Here's our business correspondent, Theo Leggett. The group calls itself Millionaires for Humanity. They call on governments to raise taxes for people like themselves, immediately, substantially and permanently. They explain that the impact of the current crisis will be felt for decades and could push an extra half a billion people into poverty. A panel of international health experts says the COVID-19 crisis could result in a 20% reduction in access to health and social services for some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Nemi Grimley reports. This UN panel was already worried about fragile health systems in the world's poorest countries. But its verdict is that COVID-19 is making a bad situation worse. It predicts there'll be an additional 400,000 deaths of children under the age of five, while maternal deaths could rise by 24,500. A plan to tighten coronavirus restrictions in part of Catalonia in northeast Spain has been thrown into confusion by a judge's ruling which annulled a decision by the region's government. Danny Eberhard has more. The confinement was meant to begin at midnight. One Catalan newspaper reports that a restaurant owner went to bed last night in tears at the prospect of once again having to shut his doors. He woke up to learn the judge had overruled the regional government, so called his staff back in. The judge felt the measure to be disproportionate, needing the authority of a national state of emergency. Hong Kong's government has announced strict new controls to combat a growing spike in infections there. The maximum number of people allowed at public gatherings is being reduced from 50 to 4. Mask wearing will be compulsory on public transport and after 6pm restaurants will only be able to serve takeaway food. Finally, here in London, elderly residents at a care home who've been unable to see visitors during the coronavirus lockdown have found an imaginative way to pass the time by recreating some of music's best-known album covers. Daniel Mann reports. The entertainment manager at Sidmar Lodge decided it was time for a bit of fun after four months of lockdown, so he let the residents pose for photos which replicate album covers. With her head leaning to one side, Vera becomes Adele, and rather than Adele 21, it's Vera 93. Even four of the staff get in on the act with their album Carers, better known as Queen 2. Daniel Mann, and that's the latest coronavirus global update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. It's been a year and a half since the Our Care, Our Choice Act went into effect here in the islands. How many people have chosen this end-of-life option? 
Have there been changes to the certification process to make it easier for patients and their loved ones? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show to hear the latest. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. As a representative to Congress, Prince Kohio helped author and pass the Hawaiian Homes and Commission Act of 1920. Its goal? to put Native Hawaiians back on their ancestral lands. The act created a Hawaiian Homes Commission and set aside 200,000 acres of land that would be awarded to Hawaiians to be used as homesteads. It defined a Native Hawaiian as someone having 50% Hawaiian blood. It was signed into law by President Warren G. Harding in 1921, and later that year, the first homestead opened on Molokai, awarding land leases to 40, 42 Native Hawaiians. Uh, 22 of which were agricultural and 20 residential. In 1925, a second homestead on the island was established. Where was the first Hawaiian homestead created? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. schools are finalizing plans for the 2020-2021 academic year, even though the school board put off a decision on the blueprint provided by school superintendent Christina Kishimoto. We reached out to Kuala Lapu'u, a Molokai charter school, about its approach to learning and staying safe this fall. Here's Principal Lydia Trinidad. My approach is basically, I want to see where our parents were at in terms of the potential return to school. How safe were they? How comfortable? how anxious they are to return. So based on that survey, we have about probably 80, 90 students wanting to have, or at least their parents wanting their children to have a full face-to-face. We're still trying to get about 100 more responses from parents. Or we sent the survey out about three or four times. Also surveyed our teachers where they were at and see how flexible that they were willing to go. So we did say, are you interested in teaching all three models? teaching one model or teaching only two models. And they gave us survey information on that. So I think what what we came out of this is our families have a full range of options, which we wanted to meet. And we have faculty that are flexible enough to do all three models. And so right now we're at the of trying to say how many full day teachers I need, how many hybrid teachers we need, and how many virtual teachers uh, we need to set aside. So that's our basic approach. So we're not choosing a model. Our model is we're trying to do all three. Seems very ambitious. I call it Sudoku. But I think we can actually offer the majority of families what they have signed up for. And of course, we're going to be looking at some of our vulnerable populations and seeing that maybe they really need to be full day and save some spots for some of our high risk students on the full model. So the majority of people who have returned the survey would prefer to be face-to-face? Or hybrid. And your teachers then are flexible. You know, I mean, I worry about if they have children too and how they're going to make that work. Well, we offer the full-day option so that when we, even before summer went out, we asked, we tried to ask our own staff, you know, what are you looking at? What are you most concerned about? And definitely our own staff said, you know, what am I going to do with my child? And we said, okay, it's very important that we offer something to our own staff first. And if we're going to do full day, we let them have the first choice of the full day. 
So that means they have the teachers here or ready to work and not worry about their own families. So that was one of the first initial uh, uh, pieces of information I got from our staff, at least definitely the teachers. So um, really trying to be ambitious and offer all three opportunities, I think, is where we're at. And I don't want to force families who are not ready to come back to have a full day. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, I think we can do it. But it will take some kind of definitely uh, help from everyone in being flexible. Well, it sounds like you've got a wonderful community there that's willing to work together. They're trying to be understanding of everybody's needs under this you know, very difficult time. Yeah, we're, we're trying. Um, some of the things we're still trying to work out are our bus transportation, um, if we can have a flexible bus transportation system going, and trying to see if we can still feed our children breakfasts and lunch, even if they're not on campus, and still do a grab-and-go, or if we can do a delivery system with our school food service. So those are some of the details that we have not completed or have any type of conclusion yet. We can only try and push. Now, I'm just curious because I went to a school here in Kalihi, and they had just switched over from plastic utensils to metal utensils. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, How do you do it at your school? We're still on plastics. Um, we want to move into the reusable type of um, utensils, but it, we'll, we'll have to redesign our kitchen, basically. You need a dishwasher. Uh, you need a dishwasher. Um, yeah, so we've... We've been in plastic for the last 20 years, and I think everybody's really conscious of not using plastic, but this is where we're at. And it's unfortunate because with COVID, everybody's using plastic now, even more so. Um, but we're, it's, in our, it, it's in our plan to try and move to uh, reusable utensils and plates, kind of go back the old way when we had the trays. Old school, but it's, yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's, a, it's, a, it's total redesign of our kitchen. So it's not just changing it out. It's getting the right equipment, which is several thousand dollars, and looking at a kitchen designer. So based on then the guidance that you're getting from the school superintendent and the feedback from your parents and your teachers, you think you've got a plan at this point as you move to open that first week of August? Yes. We we still follow, you know, the, a lot of the, the department, Hawaii Department of Health and uh, Hawaii DOE, we use their guidelines for the safety aspect of opening school. The instructional programming is definitely, at least for charters, because they get to design their delivery. So I think unlike the DOE schools where they have to choose a certain model, we're offering all three. The other difference that we are doing at Kualapu is our goal is to have the children come every day. So even if you're on the hybrid or on the um, what is called the blended model, we'll have two shifts. We'll have a morning group maybe till about 11, and then they go home, hopefully take home lunch, and then we have an afternoon group come in and have their instruction from like 12 to 2.45. So at least in that model, we will see the children every day. So that's the plan. How large is your campus? Because we've been talking to, you know, a number of private schools, and they maybe have the luxury of space. Not all our schools have the luxury of space. And, you know, you may have crowded classrooms. We laid one of our classrooms out and put, you know, did the social distancing six feet, and I could fit about 15, 15 desks and chairs with one student every six feet. Uh, so we could fit about 15. I will need to tell our teachers to remove a lot of their, a lot of the material, put them into closets, um, the physical space. And um, we're on 11 acres, so we hope to still have PE um, and um, have art classes and some of the other things that we offer, at least definitely for the full-day students. So you're able to do the six feet versus the three feet? Yeah. And uh, what about the masks? What's the guidance on masks? We'll be following what the department puts out with the masks. I know all the adults have to use the masks. We're going to definitely encourage the children to wear the masks. And we're elementary, so I think we're learning about, you know, if a child cannot wear a mask for medical reasons, if a child just cannot keep it on, um, you know, is it a discipline issue? You know, we don't want to make it a discipline issue. We might have to just remind the children to keep it on. But I think realistically, I think that's going to be hard for everybody. I don't know if any adult can keep the mask on for seven hours. So, But we're going to try. We're going to try and um, definitely encourage the safety practices. 
not only for the adults, but for the children. I think the children, they have the hardest time. And I think the children like to be with each other. Even now with our, with our summer school, we have a handful of students coming on campus. They like the close physical contact, if not with their adult, you know, with their teachers or their adult helpers. They like physical contact with their classmates. So I think that's the whole tragedy of this COVID thing that we can no longer hug <laughs> or it's like a second it used to be first nature to hug but now we you know it's like oh I don't know if I can hug you right now it's, it's, I feel that's actually the saddest thing for me as an educator or as an adult and these kids want to hug you they come up to you and and it's like do I just hug them or do I pause that's the struggle we you know as teachers as educators when we come back how do we manage that space and how do we give the safety message but say hey you know we still want to be here we want to be with you and we want to be close to you that's going to be a real interesting navigation not only for the kids but for the adults if we can work together but also forgive as we move forward that you know we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have some missteps and but that the goal is always about safety and the goal is always about giving the best to our children educationally that as long as the intent is there and we can do that for each other, I think we'll be fine. And I think that's what we're definitely trying to do. The whole state education is trying to find the, the best model for the families and right. where they're feeling safe. And that would be the first thing. That was Lydia Trinidad, principal of Kualapu'u School, a public conversion charter, talking about her ambitious plan to offer the school community choice this fall. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts, and it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story today about how religious groups applied for the Paycheck Protection Program. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story that uh, Stuart Yurton wrote. Right. He's up. He's got up on the website right now. He's not here today because he is covering the the COVID nineteen committee hearing at the the state capitol today. Uh, some new developments there, I understand. But that's not what we're talking today. <laughs> we're talking about and boy, this is a tough one for radio, right? The PPP. Yes. Don't want to pop those peas. Um, so as has been widely reported, uh, a lot of money dished out by the U.S. Small Business Administration and about $510 billion, that's as of May 30th, it went to about 4.5 million borrowers. And it included a lot of money for Hawaii, about $2.4 billion. What hadn't been reported previously is that it wasn't just small businesses, large businesses too, that received uh, this money. It also included a lot of religious organizations churches, temples, and the like, and that includes uh, many here in Hawaii. Yeah, and it it is interesting to look at this list. Um, yeah, it's really something else, and it's a little vague in terms of how much everybody got, because a lot of the loans are for $150,000 or less, but for the big uh, the biggest recipients, that information has been made public because Hawaii got about, it's in a range, right, between $22 million, $43 million, but among the 
22 groups that got more than 350K. Well, I'm just going to list a couple of them. Uh, the Word of Life Christian Center, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Honolulu, uh, New Hope International Ministries, uh, Calvary Chapel of Honolulu, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Honpao Hongwanji, <laughs> Mission of Hawaii. That's um, And there's a lot of them are very well-known organizations. And of course, what is important to understand here is that churches, temples, mosques, synagogues, so forth, they also have people employed, people they have to pay. And remember how this works. If you uh, use most of this money, 75% of it, to keep people on your payroll, you don't have to pay that money back to the federal government. Right. And, and some of the larger uh, churches, you know, Trinity, Presbyterian, 119 jobs sustained. Uh, First Assembly, you've got 100 jobs there. Right. We lifted a graph with the amounts of money and the, and the employees. And then Stewart actually did talk to some of the folks directly. He spoke to people at Central Union Church. And, and lo and behold, they've got between 50 and 70 people. And they're still doing business. Because just like businesses, they also pretty much had to shut down because of COVID these last couple months. But they still have people to serve, people in their congregation. And with Central Union Church, that includes what they call super seniors, right? Folks that are 75 years and above, they still need help from uh, from these faith-based organizations. And they also have the preschool uh, as well at Central Union. Exactly. And here's another thing. Because of COVID, you know, some of their revenue... Um, Earners have dropped out, like like Central Union, which we all know is on Baratania, very nice, uh, wonderful facility. Punahou and Mid School, Mid Pack did not hold their graduations this year because of because of of COVID, and so that was money that they normally would be getting, and they did not receive that this year. It was interesting to see uh, on that list St. Joseph's and Hilo. I know they were uh, on uh, thin ice earlier and and <laughs> yeah. thought they were going to shut down, and then the community rallied and they were able to. Uh, to hang tough, but then there was another school, I think, in Kalihi, St. John the Baptist. I don't see it here on this list. They may or may not have, but they're close. May have down. been a smaller, yeah, might have been a smaller amount. I mean, this is another thing that was enlightening, I think, about Stuart's story, not only the fact that religious groups were able to get this money. Previous to this, the SBA, the Small Business Administration, actually did not include religious organizations in its loans, but they now do that. They checked. It would have been unconstitutional <laughs> to deny these groups this money. So that is clear. There's no exemption for religious groups, hence all the money coming in. I should mention one other that kind of caught my eye, the Soto Mission uh, Buddhist Temple in Nuuanu, and uh, 26 staff they have to support. I was checking their website today, by the way. They are actually live streaming the bone services, right? Because ah, you yes. can't have a, a bond dance anymore during COVID, but they still, this is another, I think, example of how um, folks like the Soto Mission are still doing doing their work, even with COVID. Right, even if it's remotely. They're, yes. they're still out there um, uh, doing the work for the community. Exactly. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat's political and opinions editor, Chad Blair, joining us this morning with your reality check. Head to civilbeat.org to see the list. This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We learn about the epic journey of a long-period comet traveling towards the sun. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. As usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky. They both rise in the east between 6 and 7 p.m. The moon this week is approaching the new moon phase, which means stargazing for those faint objects is going to become a lot easier as the week goes on. And I understand this week you've got news about a comet and its last appearance? Indeed, it is comet C2020F3neowise. <laughs> we'll be making a spectacular final appearance in our dawn skies this week and will be visible shortly before sunrise. 
And even though it would be visible to the naked eye as a fuzzy blob, it is best appreciated through a pair of binoculars, or if you're very lucky, a telescope. You'll be treated to a wonderful sight of the comet's tail as it sails through the solar system on its way to an approach of our sun. All right, you've got everybody's attention, Chris. Where are we looking for this thing now? <laughs> Well, it's currently in the northeast, not far from the star Capella in the constellation of Auriga. Capella is known here in Hawaii as Hokulei and is part of the star line Kika Omakali'i. However, in order to accurately determine its position, it is recommended you consult a star chart because it is quite faint. And it's easy to lose with the naked eye amongst all the other bright stars in that region of the sky. And how long do folks have to see it? Well, the best viewing will be this week. And it's not very long, unfortunately, because it's getting nearer to the sun. Now, this is twofold because it means the comet's tail will likely become brighter as it warms on mm. its approach. But ultimately, it will whip around the sun and be obscured from view as it begins its journey out into the dark of the outer solar system. And this comet seems to have come out of nowhere. Give us a little bit of information on when it was discovered. Well, it's a very recent discovery, actually. It was discovered by NASA's NEOWISE Space Telescope in March. NEOWISE is designed to look for hazardous near-Earth asteroids, but comets also fall into its realm of discovery. And does that mean there's some sort of hazard with this thing? I'm guessing not from your lack of urgency. <laughs> You're absolutely right. There's no danger posed by the comet at all. It's on an epic celestial journey, with its orbit taking it around the sun once every 7,000 years or so. It's what we call a long-period comet. So unless you're willing to wait another few thousand years, now is the time to catch Neowise before it heads out back into the dark. Sounds like good advice, and thank you so much, Christopher Phillips. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. And for today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the state... Department of Hawaiian Homelands. In 1960, the state created the department to administer the Hawaiian Homelands Program and Land Trust. But the history of Hawaiian homesteading via the government goes back to the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act of 1920. Prince Jonah Kuhio Kalaniani Ole, the territory of Hawaii's delegate to Congress, pushed the legislation to get more of his people back to the land. In 1921, it was signed into law, and later that year, 42 Native Hawaiians were awarded lot leases on Molokai, 22 for agriculture, 20 for residential. The homestead was called Kalani Ole Settlement at Kalamaula. Congratulations to Patrick from Hilo. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Do you know the name of the first woman in space? Well, Russian cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova broke barriers on June 16, 1963. Her historic flight was a source of pride for the USSR, whose motto, Space First, was a mission to get in space before the Americans. The U.S. would send Sally Ride into orbit some 20 years later. That story caught the attention of uh, Ilani student Summer Royal. She produced a documentary about the role of propaganda in breaking barriers. Take a listen. Her name was Valentina Cherskova. A day earlier, she was an unknown Yaroslav textile worker, but she touched down a national hero, riding with Nikita Khrushchev in her own ticker tape parade, flaunting Soviet technology and equality, perfectly represented by Cherskova. After World War II, drawing women into the labor force became an economic necessity after the Soviets suffered a 74 million population loss. This early stage did employ heavy propaganda to pull women into the workforce. By the end of the revolution, 15% of women participated in government. By the 40s, 
50% comprise of the workforce. So choosing a male and a female cosmonaut seemed natural. Cherishkova was an expert parachute jumper, joined the Air Force, learned to jet pilot, and quickly gained the respect of the entire cosmonaut corps. Her flight upstaged the U.S. because it was an inconceivable feat by American social standards. The barriers she broke down were in the U.S., not the Soviet Union. You don't Her flight had an indelible effect on American women. The landmark book that kick-started the second wave of feminism, Betty Friedan's Feminine got a second wind on the New York Times bestseller list after Valentina's flight. And we talked to Summer Royal about her entry in the Senior Division Individual Documentary category for the 2020 National History Day competition, which won gold. This year, my topic was what I call the Cherskova effect, the vastly different impact that the orbit of the first woman in space, Valentina Cherskova, had on the United States and the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, you see, there was a long history of women's liberation and self-actualization, starting from the earliest days of the Bolshevik Revolution. And by the 1960s, the USSR had successfully implemented a social infrastructure that allowed women to pursue higher education and a career. And the central government built a wide system of public kindergartens and dining halls to free women from their domestic duties so that women could be pulled into the workforce to enable the country to bounce back from the economic and social ravage of World War II. So when Valentina Cherskova lifted into her orbit in 1963 in the USSR, it was an entirely natural phenomenon for a woman to have done so. And she represented the strong, the smart, capable socialist woman perfectly. However, in the U.S., the situation was the diametrical opposite of the Soviet Union. Middle-class American women were sent back to the home after World War II to let the 7 million veterans re-enter the workforce and to re-establish a sense of normalcy. Russia was ahead of the game, and they were providing women and young girls with opportunities to get into science and become astronauts. Yes, exactly. How did you decide on picking this topic? Oh, well, that's a great question, and it's actually really interesting. Um, a few years ago, I made a documentary on the Soviet side of the space race, and I remembered reading about Cherskova's accomplishments, and so when the organizers of National History Day announced this year's topic as breaking barriers in history, her flight jumped into my mind immediately. And previously, when I was at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, a small four-by-six photograph showing the cosmonaut group of the early space race caught my attention. And the annotation listed the cosmonauts' names and stated that all but Cherskova were military pilots. And I found absolutely no other trace of information referring to the first female cosmonaut, Valentina Cherskova. And I felt that her accomplishment deserved a deeper recognition for breaking barriers on several levels. And I was actually originally going to focus on the Soviet side again, but during my research, it became painfully obvious to me that her flight broke barriers in entirely different ways in the Soviet Union than it did in the United States. And once I realized that she doesn't have a single authorized biography written, aside from a very skeletal autobiography she wrote for young children, I was even more motivated to memorialize her achievements. And so, gosh, I don't know, do you want to be an astronaut after doing all this research and seeing, you know, yeah, how women have I, uh, excelled in this area, at least for the Russians anyway? Yeah, I'm actually... I don't know if I would say that I'm interested in aeronautics per se, but I'm definitely very interested in science and the history of science. And I actually think that the two subjects work well together and they go hand in hand. And my passion for science helped drive me into this topic. And conversely, studying the history of these scientific achievements drives me further into my passion of science. But to be direct and answer your question, I'm not sure if aeronautics is my exact passion, but it's more the study of these scientific achievements and the history of these scientific achievements that I really appreciate. What is it about history that you just love so much? Well, I think that 
history is really important for everyone. Everything we learn is in our roots. It's our background. I think regardless of what subject you go into, history is an extremely important subject to be well aware of for, like I said, even if you go into science. And I really don't know how to quite put my finger on it, but I think that everything we do in our future, we need to be aware of past events to not repeat it. And particularly with these scientific achievements, say the atomic bomb, when you're a researcher, you need to be aware of the effects that your research could have on future generations. And I just think it's so interesting to analyze the way people thought in the past that led to certain events and to use that information to guide our future studies. So when you watch on TV, you know, the woman astronaut that spent the longest time on the space station, and when you watched her come back, what's going through your mind? Well, I'm just so excited about how far we've come since the 1960s, since the time of Cherskova. Um, Of course, there's still work to be done, but it's moments like this that make me realize that people are learning from our future, that people are listening to our current youth and our current generation, and we're definitely making progress and moving forward. In addition to winning the gold for your research, you're one of five in the nation who won a five-week residency at the National History Academy in Virginia. Yes, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm over the moon of excitement with the fact that people are able to see my work and that I can actually have an impact and use the information that I've learned to inform others with these types of awards and opportunities to show my documentary. When will you do that residency? I actually do think it's in the summer of 2021. Next summer? Yes. All right, you know, because I was just wondering how that all works with COVID. Actually, there's been no precise date yet, and that's probably because of how uncertain everything is right now. But still, wow, what, what, a, what an honor. I don't even know how to process all the emotions that I've been feeling ever since all of this started. And do you know what what got you interested in history? I would say that I've always been interested in history. I don't think there was ever a time when I wasn't interested in learning about the history of past events. I think, if anything, maybe my focus has changed. For instance, I used to be really interested in anthropology, but lately I've been focusing more on this particular era of the 1960s and the juxtaposition of life in the Soviet Union versus America. But I think in general, I've always found it interesting to learn about the story behind the objects I have or learn about the stories behind the people I meet. It's always been a part of who I am, I think. That was Summer Royal, a junior at Iolani School, winner of the Gold Prize for History in the Council of Humanities National History Day competition. Hawaii had 52 entries in last month's virtual contest and also won silver and bronze awards. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we hear more about preparations underway at the airport to welcome more travelers and test for those with symptoms of the virus. Do you have a story idea? Please call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine.